Friends, it is all too easy in the life of faith to forget what we are really all about, to let the zeitgeist of our times invade our perspective, leaving us anxious and worried about things like money or politics or the latest news cycle. In church, we worry about these very same things alongside other matters like worship attendance and building maintenance and fundraising. And all of these things are indeed important, but they are not our fundamental purpose. And it's helpful from time to time to step back and remember what that is, what it is that we are really all about, to articulate our core values and principles. And there's no better way to do that than revisiting Jesus' Sermon on the Mounts and the Beatitudes in particular. These encapsulate the heart of what it means to be a Christian and a follower of Jesus. And as it turns out, following Jesus is pretty different from following the ways of the world and simply doing what we're told. reading from the gospel according to Matthew. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you, and may they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, which we strive to follow, and in whose name we pray, amen. Well, I don't know if any of you have been there lately, but the Stratford Square Mall has fallen on hard times. I took my son Ethan there a few weeks ago, surprised to find that the mall was actually still open, but just barely. What little activity remains is mostly clustered around the old food court, which only has one place left to eat. Even the Sarku Japan, where I used to go for soba noodles and teriyaki chicken, has sadly closed up shop. And the further you get from the central rotunda, the more the hallways stretch outwards, all darkened glass and silence. Now, Ethan, who doesn't really fall far from the proverbial tree, is loving every minute of this. You see, he's taken an interest in what's known as liminal spaces, or the places between, often characterized by an eerie ambiance. These places are usually abandoned, once filled with life, but now empty. An apt description of the Stratford Square Mall, I think, caught between its vibrant past and its inevitable 
demolition. Man, this is so liminal, Ethan says in awe as we peer through the glass of what used to be a Sears department store. I'd say he's a weird kid, but I get it. I'm just as fascinated by this eerie scene, these barren walls that could tell so many stories. Behind the glass, you can still make out the outlines of old clothing racks, standing like sentinels above a floor littered with hangers and other debris. I think back to my childhood when a sight like this would have been inconceivable. In those days, Sears was still a thriving international conglomerate, and shopping malls were the place to be, bustling with teenagers and families every day of the week, the veritable apex of 20th century commerce. And I wonder, as I turn from the glass storefront to look out at the shuttered noodle shop across the way, what it is that makes an institution thrive, and moreover, what makes it last and stand the test of time while others fade away. When Sears Roebuck was reincorporated in 1906 by um, one of its founding partners, Julius Rosenwald, he proclaimed a simple idea. Sell honest merchandise for less money. Rosenwald pioneered the idea of guaranteed customer satisfaction or your money back. In a similar fashion, Henry Ford built his business on a single-minded principle that every American household ought to be able to afford an automobile, especially the people who worked for him. But somewhere along the line, those founding principles and ideals got lost amid the cutthroat world of corporate finance. Sears put a hedge fund manager in charge, Edward Lampert, who ran the company into the ground and started selling off its assets for his own profit. In short, the New York Times reported back in 2014, Mr. Lampert is busy dismantling Sears while the business declines, voraciously eating all of the cash he raises. He seems adept at slicing and dicing Sears, but he has failed miserably at turning this business around. Ford, meanwhile, has stopped selling sedans for the blue-collar crowd, focusing its attention instead on more expensive and luxurious trucks and SUVs for its wealthier clientele, in spite of its founding principles. Now, I will admit I'm a little bit out of my depth here in this conversation. I'm not a market analyst or a finance expert. Having said that, as a church pastor, Part of my job is to understand institutional stability and sustainability. Two dozen ministers of this congregation have come before me, leaving a legacy that I don't take lightly. And I don't know about you, Kyle, I don't know what you want to be remembered for, for your service here, but for my part, you know, I'd, I'd like to be remembered like one of these other pastors for their, their courage, their wisdom, their faith, their intelligence. I want to be remembered one day for something more than just the guy who had the best sideburns. <laughs> and I probably don't, because, you know, some of those 19th century circuit riders who were preaching here, I had some pretty killer chops. Can I get an amen? amen. <laughs> I have a responsibility. We, 
we collectively have a responsibility to understand why when other established institutions have gone the way of the Stratford Square Mall, this congregation is still here. And why I believe we will still be here for generations to come. Like all enduring organizations, this church was built on a founding principle. Our forebearer, Jonathan Yalding, had three daughters uh, in a town back in the 1860s, this town, which was known at the time for its illicit activities like gambling and prostitution, much of this activity occurring right down the street at Stacy's Tavern. In concern for his daughters, Yalding declared that he did not want to raise them, and I quote, in a town that had no church and was only known for its taverns and house of ill repute. Now, that may seem like a distant concern in 21st century Glen Ellen, a picturesque suburb with excellent schools and a church on nearly every corner. But what Jonathan Yalding was really proposing, I think, was a place that stood in defiance of the dominant culture around him. A place where people can gather and think for themselves, where they can challenge widely accepted narratives and norms in light of the gospel. And since 1862, this church has been a free-thinking and forward-thinking community. We don't blindly accept things because the pastor says so or even because the Bible says so. I certainly don't. We draw our own conclusions, and I personally find that Jesus' teachings ring true. Our culture teaches us that we are consumers and laborers and little more, and that our primary purpose in life is to stimulate the economy. But the gospel reminds us that we are children of God with a sacred calling to love one another. The culture teaches us to hoard our wealth, but the gospel encourages us to share it. The culture teaches us to exploit the earth, but God tells us to care for it. That all sounds about right to me. I admire Jonathan Yalding's commitment to challenging the status quo. 160 years ago, when this uh, church building had to be moved down Main Street on a series of rolling logs, uh, it became clear that it was beginning to gain too much momentum. It was going too fast. It was speeding out of control. Jonathan Yalding, a man of very small stature but apparently big determination, threw his body in front of the building in order to keep it from slipping. And if that's not a great metaphor for defying the larger zeitgeist, I don't know what is. Jesus, of course, of course, challenged dominant cultural narratives of his time, too. The Romans believed that peace can only be achieved through war, that order can only be maintained through subjugation, and that martial strength is a virtue. And in many ways, that hasn't changed. The tragic death of Tyree Nichols recently illustrates that reality. It reminds us that we still live in a culture of domination, subjugation, and violence. Regardless of what 
the culture preaches, that is what is practiced. But Jesus did not buy into any of this. In his well-known Beatitudes, Jesus turns the so-called virtues of his culture on their head. And he shares an alternative vision, a better way. And that vision aligns, I believe, with this church's founding principles, which we still adhere to today. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. I've met folks here at church who carry enormous burdens of guilt and shame. People who have been rejected, dejected, but have found a home here. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We have buried countless generations over the years, celebrated their lives. And in especially tragic circumstances, I find myself wondering what their loved ones would have done if the church wasn't here to hold them. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. My youngest son, Levi, was in our Christmas pageant this year. He was the one in the spider costume. And he was really scared and shy when he came to the rehearsal the day before. And it wasn't until the boy that was sitting next to him, Dexter, started chatting him up that I saw Levi smile and laugh. And I realized that he finally felt like he really belonged. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Folks in this church have a passion for justice. They always have, and they are willing to fight for it and work for it and invest in it. We've housed the homeless, campaigned to build affordable housing, fed the hungry, fought for equity in our states and in our schools, and educated ourselves about the, the, the reality of systemic racism and economic oppression. These endeavors do not align with the dominant cultural paradigm, but rather with the teachings of Jesus whom we follow, not under threat of damnation or because someone told us to, but by our own free will, because we believe that what he said is true. As I mentioned at the beginning of the service, our annual fundraising letter is going out this week. I won't tell you what to give because I'm not in the business of telling you what to believe or what to do. And far too many churches have collapsed because they've become so anxious about their budget that they forget why they exist in the first place. Everything becomes about money, the bottom line, just like everything else in our culture. Now, having said that, my family personally is, is committed to a 10% increase over last year's pledge. We try to give a little more every year because we believe in this place and what we're about. Jesse's uh, testimony really resonated with me because there are so many times that this church has been a blessing in my life. I didn't grow up here like her, but I was married here. My children were baptized here. and This church is such an enormous part of my life and such a blessing. And frankly, I sleep better at night knowing that I'm a part of something good in this broken world. Frankly, I don't trust the dominant narratives of our society. I think they're short-sighted and manipulative and exploitative 
And here, like Jesus, we're free to challenge those ideas. Here, I get to stand up every week and look for a better way with all of you. Just last night, after I'd written all of this, I was eating some pizza around midnight, as one does, um, reading articles about the state of the world and so on, and I read something that really rang true. A better world is possible, someone wrote, but we have to leave the old one behind. While once the old narrative sparkled like a new casino, now it sits like an abandoned mall. Here, though, here in this place, we can be part of a community with a long history. And if we stick to our principles, perhaps we can enjoy an even longer future. Amid the busy streets of Kyoto in Japan stands an innocuous two-story wooden building. It's been there since 1465, a turbulent period known as the Sengoku era, when local warlords clashed for supremacy and nearly destroyed the city just two years after this place was built. And amid the chaos and collapse, this, bil this building housed a small confectionery shop called Honke Awaria. Few could have imagined that it would still be standing there even two years later, never mind 600, or that the very same bakery would still be thriving today. Not only is it a popular tourist destination, but it's also the favorite lunch spot for the royal family when they're in town. Some things have changed over the years. During the Edo period in the 18th century, they shifted their primary focus from mochi, a kind of dessert, to soba noodles, which are a popular staple of local Zen monks. But there is one thing, one principle, that the owners of this business have never compromised. They make their noodles, much like their very first confections, using water from their family well. You see, the water beneath Kyoto is renowned for its rich combinations of minerals that make it ideal for cooking and brewing sake. For generations, the owners of this noodle shop have refused to use anything else in their ingredients. Even when they expanded the business into other parts of Kyoto, opening two other locations, they insisted on drilling their own wells to tap into the very same aquifer. Now let's think about this for a minute. Imagine how easy it would be, given their pedigree and their commercial success, to open up noodle shops all over Japan. All over the world, maybe, giving Sarku Japan and all of those shopping mall food courts a run for its money. But it's clear that the, the owners are interested in more than just profit and money. They remain faithful to their founding principle. And that, I think, is why they are still here 16 generations later, while the ruins of Sarku, Japan, sit amid the decay of the Stratford Square Mall, across the hall from the empty Sears department store. We have to be faithful who we are as a community, to who we are as a congregation, a church, and to who we believe God to be. 
And if we can do that, then we will still be here for generations to come. Kyle and I will not be the last pastors of this church. And I probably don't have the best sideburn. But I hope I can at least be remembered for being faithful to this place. And I hope that you will join me. Amen.